Luke 9, 37 through 50. And as always, I know that it's going to help you to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me this morning as we look at God's Word together. And before we do, let me just briefly go to him and ask for his blessing on the preaching of his Word. Father in heaven, again, we come this morning and we come to sit. We come to hear, we come to listen, we come to have our minds uh, renewed and our hearts restored. We pray, our Father, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that understand that we might turn and be healed. We pray, our God, that you would send your word out with great power, that it would be victorious in our lives, in this congregation, and in the world. We pray, our God, that you would make us to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ this morning, that we might be drawn to him and built up in him and rooted in him, that you would keep us close to him, that you would come out after those that are wandering and that you would keep those who are near you close. And so, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we commit ourselves to you in this time to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 9, beginning in verse 37, and now... Luke says, On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. Behold, a spirit seizes him. He suddenly cries out, it convulses him, so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, How long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they may not perceive it. They were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child In my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, there is a really uh, majestic painting that Raphael, the great Renaissance artist, painted. It was the last painting that he ever painted. He was commissioned to do so. And by the way, children, I'm not talking about a Ninja Turtle when I talk about Raphael. He was one of the great artists, one of the great uh, Renaissance painters. And this is a painting of the Transfiguration. It took him four years to finish this painting. Uh, It was commissioned to hang in a museum in France. It ended up in the Louvre for many years and became one of the great works of art in human history, an example to others. But one of the great things about this painting in particular is the contrast with which Raphael contrasts 
the glory of what's going on in the mountain and the darkness of what's going on at the foot of the mountain. That is the great purpose of this painting. As you look at it, it's hard to miss. There is light and brightness and glory at the top of the mountain. There is darkness and gloom and drear and anxiety and worry and bickering and fear at the foot of the mountain. Uh, he has taken both the account that we looked at last time in Luke of Jesus going up at the Mount of Transfiguration. He has coupled it with everything we're looking at now. When Jesus comes down from the mountain, it is a starkly different picture. There was glory and brightness. There was a taste of the heavenly glory at the top of the mountain there with Jesus and Moses and Elijah and Peter and James and John. But no sooner does he come down that there is darkness and despair and fear. And here is the picture of the other disciples, the, the um, other nine disciples at the foot of the mountain. And there is the picture of a father who is in great despair because he has an only son. And this son is demon-possessed, and he is therefore, uh, by way of implication, epileptic. And he is convulsing, and the father can't help him. And the father has brought his little boy to the disciples because he thought maybe the disciples could heal this little one. Because remember, Jesus had already sent the disciples out and had given them power to preach and to heal and to exercise authority over demonic forces of darkness. And yet the disciples can't heal this little boy and there are others Luke tells us notice verse 37 on that day when they had come down from the mountain a great crowd met him now uh, this account in particular and everything that follows uh, is developed in much more detail in Matthew and Mark and we will learn that the majority of that crowd were the scribes who were chiding and deriding the disciples for not being able to help this man by healing his son in his hour of greatest need. Uh, one of the interesting things about that painting, and as you look at the faces, the boy is convulsing, the father is standing there with despair and hopelessness on his face. Um, the disciples are looking anxious because they can't do anything. One is pointing up the mountain as if to say there is one who will come who can help. And there are members in the crowd, the scribes, who are pointing the finger and who are heaping condemnation on the disciples for their failure. That's the picture that Scripture gives us, and that's the picture that Raphael gives us in that great painting. Well, as I've mentioned already, Jesus has brought the disciples down with him. They had tasted heavenly glory for a moment. There had been a moment in which uh, the, the consummate glory, the eternal glory of Jesus Christ broke into time and space, and for one moment it was displayed on that mountain, and then Jesus has come down now into the valley, into the darkness. You know, it's very interesting. Uh, what Jesus does here in this account is, in a sense, he brings a trail of the glory that was displayed at the Mount of Transfiguration with him into the darkness of the valley. That's, that's what Luke wants you to see. That's the big picture. Don't miss that this morning. When Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, he is bringing with him a trail of the glory that was displayed there that he himself has by virtue of his divine nature, and he's bringing it down into the valley, into the faith, faithlessness of his disciples, into all their stumblings, all their failings, and that glory is still emanating out of the darkness of everything going on in the valley. 
Well, notice there are several accounts that Luke gives us, and what these accounts do is they really highlight for us the failings of the disciples. Now, I read to you a few uh, months back a quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones when the disciples are on the boat with Jesus and they don't know what to do and they're afraid and Jesus is sleeping and they go and they wake Jesus and he rebukes the wind and the waves and then he rebukes their unbelief. Lloyd-Jones says, I never cease to be grateful to the disciples. I am grateful for the record of every mistake they ever made, every blunder they ever committed, because I see myself in them. How grateful we should be to God that we have these scriptures. How grateful to him that he has not merely given us the gospel and left it at that. How wonderful it is that we can read accounts like this and see ourselves depicted in them. Now, this morning, if you are honest with yourself, you are going to see yourself depicted in the accounts that take place in Luke 9, 37 to 50. Um, that first account, as we've already noted, of the disciples interaction with the father and the epileptic son and they can't heal him is really going to highlight for us the weakness of the disciples living in self-reliance. We're going to see two things this morning. We're going to see the weakness of the disciples living in self-reliance and then we're going to see the weakness of the disciples living in self-interest. I want you to take note to that because at the end of the day, two of our great problems are self-reliance and self-interest and what Luke is going to say is the remedy is Christ-reliance and Christ-interest. That's the point of everything highlighted in these passages. Well, notice that uh, Jesus brings those disciples down from the mountain, verse 37 of Luke 9. On the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. A man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. Now, Luke is going to tell us something about this account that Matthew and Mark don't tell us. Um, Matthew and Mark give us lots of details that Luke doesn't give us, but Luke is going to tell us that this man has an only child. This is his only son. This is his only child. This is, to him, his nearest and dearest of the gifts of God in his life. Um, you know, you could be the most hard-hearted person in the world, and you should get that. I mean, the most wicked people in the world have deep affinity for their children, especially when they only have one child. And here this man's life is falling apart. In the, in the valley of gloom, this man's life is falling apart. He has to watch his son, possessed by demons, throw himself down, convulse. He has to watch him suffer, and he can't do anything for him. There is nothing that grieves the father's heart more than not being able to do something for your child not being able to help them, not being able to, able to deliver them, not being able to provide for them or to get them out of some difficult situation. Here this man is experiencing that, that difficulty and that torment. And there's a word here for us. I want us to listen very carefully, especially if you're a Christian. You know, um, the fall has affected every one of us, and it, it is it has affected us so much more than we would ever want to wish. Um, all of us, our lives are broken. We have known what it is to be enslaved to sin. We know what it is to be weighed down with the miseries of life, failures, disappointments, hurts. We know, all of us know, to lose loved ones. All of us have known the sin and the misery of this fallen world. Nobody escapes that. 
And there's a sense in which one of the things that we can take away from this passage this morning is that even our children don't escape that. Here is this child. We don't know how young he is. We don't know um, anything about this boy. We don't know if he opened himself up to these demonic influences. We don't know if he's a teenager and if he somehow got into occult practices. We know nothing. But what we know is that Satan is an equal opportunity oppressor. And he will come after the children of believers. That's a word for those of you with children. You know, don't play around. Don't deceive yourself to thinking your children are innocent. Don't deceive yourself to thinking your children are immune. Really don't. This account tells us that every one of us is subject to the oppression and the afflictions and the difficulties of this world and the forces of darkness. And here this man has this child and he, is, he, has, been, uh, he has been severely oppressed. Notice that Luke tells us, Behold, a spirit seized him and he cried out and it convulsed him. He foamed at the mouth. It, it shook him and hardly left him. Now, this man had heard that the disciples had healed others. Just like many in Israel, he had heard that the disciples had, uh, together with Jesus, had gone out, had healed people, had delivered people who were oppressed. He had maybe heard about the Gadarene demoniac and how Jesus had healed him there in the tombs and, and how he had restored him and sent him back to his family. And so this man comes to the disciples, and uh, I imagine he thinks, you know, I'll give it a shot. It's worth a shot. I have no doctor I can go to. I can't do anything for my son. Maybe... These can help him. And you know, there's a picture here of Christians letting people down who come for help. Here, this man comes to the disciples and they can't do anything for him. Now, lest you think I'm too hard on the disciples, the other Gospels will actually tell us that Jesus, when he comes down and they ask him, why can't we heal this boy? Why can't we cast these demons out? Because they were used to, they were in the habit of healing others at this point. Jesus had imparted power. Jesus is going to tell them they had not fasted and prayed enough. They were relying on themselves. They were trusting in themselves. They had shifted gears into human dependence mode. Now, I am going to guess this morning that if we were honest, all of us would have to say that we live a whole lot of our lives in self-dependence mode. Not calling on the Lord, not trusting Him, not falling down before Him, not committing our ways to Him, not acknowledging that we don't have the resources, not depending on Him, thinking, well, something happens, I just got to go here or here or here. I mean, I, I want you to think about this. Think about the last time you had a disappointment in life and then think about where you went. The last time you had a financial hardship or some other hardship, did you get on your knees and go to the Lord? Probably not. I'm going to guess that most of us know what it is to live in self-reliant mode. I surely do. And when we slide into self-reliant mode, and when we don't go to the Lord, we have no power, and we are completely ineffective, and essentially we are useless to people. We are useless as Christians. We are useless to the church. We are useless to the world. We will not ever be able to help people in ways that they really need help if we are relying on our own resources, our own ingenuity, our own strength, our own knowledge, our own finances, or anything else to get us through the hardships. We are useless. The disciples here, these are, this is Jesus' chosen band, and they are absolutely useless. They've been with Jesus for quite a while now, 
and they can't do anything because they have decided we're just going to go on in our own strength and we're going to trust in our own efforts. Again, you know, I find myself deeply grateful, as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, for accounts like this um, because I see myself in all the disciples. Somebody asked me the other day, which of the disciples do you think you're most like? I'm, I definitely feel um, most affinity to Peter, who was impulsive, usually spoke, usually too bold in his own strength. Um, but, but we see ourselves in all of the disciples, don't we? Self-reliant, self-dependent, um, in that sense spiritually weak, not being able to help others. Notice that uh, the man comes to Jesus and he says in verse 40, I begged your disciples to cast out this demon, but they could not. And Jesus answers, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Now, here, there's a question here. That sounds pretty harsh. I mean, this doesn't sound like the Jesus of social media, who's basically a Marxist Jesus. This doesn't sound like equal outcome Jesus Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, never says anything harsh or cutting or hard or corrective. Jesus says, in response to a man who comes to him and says, I came to your disciples and they can't heal my son, Jesus says, oh, faithless and perverse generation. Now, to whom is Jesus speaking? Well, I don't think he's speaking to the man. This is the man who will cry out in Mark's gospel in this account, and Mark will tell us, this is the man who says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So this is a man coming in faith. Um, there is a sense where Jesus is rebuking the crowd, the scribes who are standing there accusing his disciples. Uh, Matthew tells us that when Jesus comes down from the mountain and he sees the scribes disputing with the nine that were left behind, he says, what are you arguing with them about? He comes to their defense. Now, what you may not know is that Jesus is taking one line out of Moses' final song in Deuteronomy 32, where Moses calls Israel a faithless and perverse generation. And he is now applying that to Israel in his day. Remember, he is the greater Moses who comes down from the mount, and he is telling his people that they are just like Israel in the Old Covenant. They are faithless. They are crooked, they are perverse. But there's another sense, and don't miss this this morning, there's another sense where Jesus is telling the disciples this. And he's telling us this when we live faithless and crooked and unbelieving lives. Jesus is saying that believers, professing believers, his own disciples, were living faithless lives. They were living self-reliant lives. Notice that Jesus says, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring your son here. As he was coming, the demon threw the boy to the ground, convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, gave him back to his father, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. Jesus does what only Jesus can do. That's really the point of this first account, is that the disciples should have known that only Christ has all the resources, all the power, all the ability to do for others what they really need. Now, I don't think the lesson here is if you have just enough faith, you can go out and exercise people's demons. I think the lesson for us is that if we trust Christ for all spiritual needs, both for ourselves and for others, 
He has all of the power, all the resources, all of the ability. It's nothing for him. It's as if Jesus comes down from the mountain transfiguration with that glory trailing and what his disciples can't do and what they've been trying to do and what the scribes and the crowd can't figure out how to do and this man can't figure out and everyone is hopeless. And listen to me very carefully. When you turn on the news, and I don't care what news you watch, the world is hopeless and it is groping for anything. And every single person that you know, including yourself, including me, by nature, are trying to cope, and everything is a coping mechanism. Money, sex, drugs, status, success, it's all coping. Just trying to cope. Trying to get through life, despair, no real change, no real power, realizing we don't have in ourselves what we need to fix ourselves and to help others change. And Jesus comes, and with a word, he heals the man's son. It's as if he exerts nothing. He is the cosmic Christ. He is the almighty Christ. Now, we first see the disciples lost sight of um, their dependence on the Lord Jesus. Notice that um, in verses 43 through 45 of Luke 9, Luke tells us while they were all marveling, Jesus turned to the disciples. He said, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. What had the disciples lost sight of? How had they shifted into self-reliance mode? This is very important. How do I shift out of Christ's dependence into self-dependence? Jesus tells them that they lost sight of the cross. They lost sight of his suffering. So they had tasted something of the glory of Jesus. They had seen the powers that Jesus had come and brought into the world. They had been instruments in in assisting the Lord Jesus in the spread of the kingdom and preaching the gospel and healing and doing those things. And all of a sudden they think, hey, we're bringing the kingdom in. We're starting to make inroads. We're making strides. We're doing good. We can do this. And they stop trusting Jesus. And they forget that everything that Jesus came into the world to do was to suffer. And that all the divine power and everything necessary for healing comes through Jesus crucified on the cross. And so he says to them, let this sink down into your ears. Now, I want to say this this morning. Jesus says this to you. Let this sink down into your ears. The Son of Man had to suffer. That's everything. That's it. The second we take our eyes off Christ crucified, we are going to fall into some form of faithless and crooked behavior and activity and mode of living. Um, as I was preparing this and I thought, wow, that is so true. In my life, when I'm not doing well, it's because my eyes are not fixed on Christ crucified. When I start to think more highly of myself than I ought to think, when I fail to have power over this sin, when I fail to be able to do this or that, when I stop trusting in Jesus, it's because I've taken my eyes off of what Jesus came into the world to do. And so Jesus reminds them that the great problem was that they took their eyes off the cross. That's always our problem. That's it. Like, imagine the world of psychology if the great psychologists and counselors of the world got that. Imagine how many lives would be changed if ministers of the gospel got that and if Christians got that. It's everything. And notice the disciples can't get it. Notice verse 45. They did not understand the saying. You know, it is sadly often so true 
that no matter how many times we hear the gospel, we don't get it. We don't get it. It doesn't sink down into our ears. It ricochets off of them. Um, that's why Jesus presses the importance of having the gospel sink down deep into your soul. It's got to go, go deep. Um, the second error that we see in the subsequent accounts is that of self-interest. The disciples have acted in self-dependence, self-reliance. Now we see that they act in self-interest. And it should make sense, right? If they have forgotten about who Jesus is, if they've forgotten their need for Christ, if they've forgotten about the cross and the centrality of the cross and the significance of Christ crucified, it would make sense that naturally there would be other errors in their lives. There would be other uh, misplaced activities and behaviors and uh, motivations. And here, Luke is going to highlight for us in several accounts and in the two that we're looking at specifically, that self-interest starts to permeate and control the lives of the disciples. Now, it's one of these interesting things as you read the Bible. Um, Jesus says or does something just mind-blowingly amazing. Transfiguration. Mind-blowing. I mean, Peter, James, and John see God and the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus. Think about that. They see the eternal divine glory breaking through the humanity of Jesus. They come down from the mountain. They see Jesus heal this, this demon-possessed boy. They then hear Jesus say, don't forget about my sufferings because this is the thing and this is what I've come into the world to do. And the very next thing they do is start an argument about who was the greatest. Oh, I want you to get this. This is you and me. This is you and me. You can have a moment where you're full spiritually. You've just heard something great. You're like, that's awesome. And the next minute, you're talking trash about somebody. Don't, don't you dare deny that. You know this. This happens. Self-interest, self-promotion. All of a sudden, the disciples are now having an argument. There's no, Luke doesn't say that there is any change. He doesn't say that there is a change in setting. Notice between verse 45 of Luke 9 and 46, they did not understand this saying, and an argument arose among them about which of them was the greatest. Now, it is probable that Peter, James, and John have come down and they're like, listen guys, let me tell you about what we saw on the mountain. And now they're recapping everything and they're like, you know, Jesus did take us. He didn't take you. And that means something. And uh, we're pretty sure, remember, James and John are going to fall into this trap when they put their mom up to going to Jesus. That's a very subtle, that's, that's, that's a very subtle uh, and, and uh, stealthy move. They put their mom up to going to Jesus and, and they say through their mom to Jesus, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And Jesus says, okay, what do you want? He entertains their foolishness. And they say, we want to sit one on your right, one on your left in your glory. Forget these guys. Forget the mission of the church. Forget the worldwide evangelism. Forget the nature of the kingdom of God. Forget your sufferings. Forget everything. We want to be the best. Because, you know, you did take us up on the mountain. You did show us the glory. So we feel like we have a good enough relationship. We can ask for this favor. And, um, and so this argument has broke out about which of them was the greatest. And then you've got to love this, verse 47. But Jesus, knowing the thoughts of their heart. 
There it is again. He knows the foolishness of our hearts. He knows what they're thinking. And, you know, here's a beautiful picture because the last time Jesus spoke to the foolishness of the disciples, it sounded harsh. He said, oh, oh, foolish, faithless, crooked generation. And now he is exceedingly tender in the face of their foolishness. Here they're arguing about who's the greatest. They've missed everything. They've missed the cross. They've missed the point. They're acting exclusively in pride and self-interest. And Jesus is going to give them a parable by bringing a child. And I, I like to think maybe it was the boy he just healed. And setting that child in their midst and saying, you need to become like this child. Um, before I look at that and Jesus' response, I want to read this to you. I've, I found this to be really, really beautiful. John Calvin talking about the pride of the disciples here, and it's really pride and self-interest, right? They, they want to take care of themselves. They want to get ahead. John Calvin says this, He is truly humble, who neither claims any merit in the sight of God, nor proudly despises brethren, or aims at being thought superior to them, but reckons it enough that he is one of the members of Christ and desires nothing more than that he and he alone should be exalted. Is that not beautiful? Jesus' own disciples have wanted exaltation over one another and have forgotten about the exaltation of the Lord Jesus. Calvin says he is humble who doesn't think there's anything in himself or herself, who doesn't think that we're better than other brethren, who doesn't want to be exalted above other brethren, but only wants Jesus to be exalted. That's the contrast. Their self-interest led them to want glory for themselves and not for Jesus. You know, I think about this. Um, one of the really sad and heartbreaking things about living in our day in the church with social media and the internet is you see how many people want to exalt themselves. And they don't even know they're doing it. And they're talking about their platforms, their agendas, their ministries, their desires, how other people need to be doing what they're saying. They put others down, they cut, they, they divide, they troll, they backbite. This is the church, people. This is Jesus' people, just like the disciples. And this is a word for the church. This is a word for us. I, mean, I think there is a word here that we desperately need. That what Jesus calls us to is absolute humility. To empty ourselves of pride, of selfish ambition, of self-interest, and, and to grasp Christ's interest and want to see Jesus exalted. You know who got this better than anybody in the whole of the Bible, I really think, was John the Baptist. Nobody had greater privileges than John the Baptist. I mean, he had the whole of the Old Covenant Church coming to him to hear him preach, and this was his life verse. He must increase, I must decrease. He must increase, I must decrease. Now, I want to read to you another word for us this morning. Uh, J.C. Ryle says, Of all sin, there is none against which we have such need to watch and pray as pride. Ryle says, It is a pestilence 
that walks in darkness, a sickness that destroys at noonday. No sin is so deeply rooted in our nature as pride. That's you, that's me, that's all of us. That's not just the disciples. It's not just the guy you don't like because you think he's proud and you think he's trying to put you down. It's you and me. Pride lives in us. Ryle says that there is no sin so deeply rooted in our nature as pride. It cleaves to us like our skin. Its roots never entirely die. They are ready at any moment to spring up and exhibit a most pernicious vitality. I thought that was a very potent and realistic word for us to get. We are all very, very proud by nature. We carry around with us a lot of pride. And Jesus comes, and notice how he deals with the self-interest and the pride of the disciples. He takes this child. Again, I like to think it's the boy that he just healed. He puts him by his side and he says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. He who is least among you all will be great. Now, here's what Jesus is doing very briefly. In this day and age in Israel, children were despised. The rabbis would use children as examples of foolishness. Um, They would uh, use children as illustrations of demeaning others who didn't know what they knew, thought what they thought, or had positions of power like they had. And so it's fitting that Jesus brings a child and he says, look, here, be like this child. Now, Now, what he's saying is children, now this is not true of my children, but most children are not seeking to one-up each other when they're very little. My children would come into my office. I have three spinning, uh, cushy executive chairs, and they would sit in there and argue about who was the president. I'm the president. No, I, no, you're the vice president. And I just told them it's probably better to be the vice president. It's a better person. They don't get that yet. But, but there is a sense where Jesus is teaching us that children are oblivious to status, in the world the way that we are always groping for it. Children don't get the idea of putting others down to get ahead. They're not always comparing themselves. There is a very real sense where children are not always comparing themselves and trying to suppress others, demean others, and to get ahead for self-advancement and self-promotion. They have sinful hearts. They are just as depraved as us. The boy that is possessed in the earlier account shows that children are not immune from the fall. Children are not innocent. If you've never had children, you will learn that. You don't have to teach your children to disobey you. The terrible twos go on to the terrible 15s. And then 30s, um, yes. I've always been surprised that unbelievers who have children can't get the truth of Scripture about total depravity. I mean, it's so obvious. Uh, And yet there is a sense where Jesus says there is a childlikeness that all of us are to be groping for, and we are to look at him as our father and elder brother, and we are to trust him, and we are to want what he wants, and we are, want, we are to want um, good for others around us. And so Jesus says, whoever receives one of these little ones receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. He who is least among you is great. Jesus doesn't obliterate all distinction. He doesn't say there is no distinction. He actually says there are great people and there are not great people. And he says that great people are people that are striving to be the least. He is saying if you want to be great, then you need to strive to be the least. If you want to be master of all, you need to become servant of all. 
if you want the best seat at the table, you need to take the least seat at the table. By the way, I hear more and more people in our day talk about distributing positions of power and seats at the table. The only seat at the table Jesus ever tells you to grasp for is the lowest one. And the only position of power Jesus ever tells you to grasp for is no position of power. He who is least will be great. He who is exalted will be humbled. He who is lowest will be greatest of all. There is one final account in which we see just how deeply ingrained, and it'll be very brief here, in which we see how deeply ingrained this issue of self-interest and pride is in the disciples. And no sooner has Jesus corrected the disciples that John, you get the sense that John's convicted and that he, he knows that he hasn't been living like he should. And so he answers Jesus and he says, well, Lord, there was that time that we saw people out there ministering and they weren't with us and we rebuked them. And you get a sense that John is confessing sin to Jesus. And he's, he's starting to deal with just how deeply ingrained self-interest is that he's even become schismatic as if that little band of disciples was better than anybody else who was ministering in the name of Jesus, even if they weren't ministering in the exact same way as the disciples were or with them. And so Jesus gives that great statement, who is not against us is on our side. Um, do not stop him. He who's not against you is for you. There are so many words for us here this morning. I just want to leave you with a couple points of application. Um, Jesus is marching to the cross. All of this is happening in that context. Um, he has come down from the mountain into the valley of darkness. There's a picture there, even though that happened really and truly historically, there is a parable in which Jesus is coming not from the mountain to the valley, but from heaven to earth and to the darkness of this fallen world, to the depravity. And he's confronting us in, in our sin and our self-interest and our self-dependence. He's coming down and he's saying, oh, oh, faithless and, and perverse people, because that's what we are by nature. And he's saying, I've come to redeem you. I've come to take all your faithlessness, all your perverseness, all your sin, all your foolishness on myself. It's about the cross. Don't forget what I've come to do. He's going to march from here to the cross and do everything he came to do to redeem the disciples that he's now correcting and to redeem us. Um, David Gooding, a Greek scholar, said... Um, the sun came not simply from the transfiguration, but from heaven itself. He went to Calvary that we, poor, deluded, and perverse men and women, far gone from God, might see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and that seeing it, we might be redeemed and restored by the Father. What do I do when I recognize self-reliance, and self-interest in my life because there's a lot of it in our lives if we have eyes to see it. What do I do when I start to see it and I realize, like John did, he started to realize how they'd been acting. We go to the cross. We go to the foot of the cross. We see that Jesus took all of that sin on himself. Um, Jack Miller used to say, you know, you are far worse than you realize, and Jesus is far better than you know. 
And he loves you far more than you realize. Um, He loved the disciples in their foolishness, faithlessness, selfishness, and pride. And he would heal them of that. You know what's amazing? And I'm going to leave you with this thought. These, minus Judas, because he'll remain faithless and perverse. These, minus Judas, are the guys that Jesus is going to use to turn the world upside down. Wow. That should astonish us. You know, I look at my life. I look at what I've been. I'm not super educated. I don't have all the degrees people have. But when Jesus redeems people, he makes them fruitful. He uses them. He uses you. He used the disciples. He uses poor, empty vessels full of pride, full of selfishness, full of self-interest, full of envy, full of malice, who look at people and compare ourselves and want to put others down and want to be hypercritical. And he says, I'm going to change the world through these people proclaiming me and what I do with the cross. That's the gospel. That means no matter who you are, no matter how faithless or no matter how perverse you have lived, Jesus has come to redeem, restore, to heal, and he does it all by hanging on the cross and rising from the dead. You don't do anything to morally transform yourself outside of what Jesus does. That's the good news this morning. No matter where you are in life, whether you are walking closely with Christ or whether you have never come to Jesus or whether you are backslidden, no matter where you are, we all need the same thing. We all need our sight fixed back on the Lord Jesus. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear This morning, what the Spirit says to the church, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would have mercy on us. We pray that you would forgive us for uh, the great self-reliance that often marks our life and the sinful self-interest and pride with which we have so often conducted ourselves. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would heal us even as you healed your disciples that you would help us to learn from you setting that child in the midst of the disciples, that you would help us to learn to be least and to keep our eyes fixed on your cross and to seek first your kingdom and your glory. We pray that you would make the cry of our heart the cry of John, that you must increase and we must decrease. Lord Jesus, would you please wash us with your blood? Would you please cleanse us? Would you please humble us? Would you please indwell us by your spirit? Would you please transform us by your grace and by all you have accomplished at Calvary? We pray these things in your name. Amen.